Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. We'll look at the challenge of our young adults today. Their social media accounts really encourages them to feel a lot of depression and anxiety and hopelessness and so forth. And to the youth who've fallen victim to the gender transition myth. Doctors really need to answer for why they're putting minors down this path when they refuse to be there for them should they need help coming out of it. Plus, we'll talk to a leading economist on the inflation hitting the American family. Inflation is always more stubborn than people think. And the prospects for what's ahead. Our own internal Boyer Research forecast is something about 4.5% over the next five years. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the family. It's no secret these last three years have been hard, particularly for teens and young adults. The social isolation brought on by the response of public authorities to the pandemic, the rise of social media, and a culture that is changing oh so quickly. Here's John Hall and Kathy Emmons with Joni DeBrito of Focus on the Family from Word 105.1 FM in Pittsburgh. I have two daughters who are uh, 21 and 24. Two sons, I, 22 and 25. So we're kind of attuned to the issues related to kids of that age. And I was reading an article yesterday, John, in the Washington Post, and it said this. It said teen girls across the U.S. are engulfed engulfed in a growing wave of violence and trauma. That's according to federal researchers who released data showing increases in rape and sexual violence, as well as record levels of feeling sad or hopeless. Mm. Nearly one in three high school girls reported last year that they seriously considered suicide. One in three girls? One in three. That's up nearly, are you ready for this? 60% from a decade ago. That's according to new findings from the CDC. Almost 15% of teen girls said they were forced to have sex, an increase of 27% over two years, and the first increase since the CDC began tracking it. This is a shocking amount of information that I just laid out. And again, I was just from the first two paragraphs of the yesterday's Washington Post article. How do you react to that? Well, it's such a sad situation, and I will also add the statistic that Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people 10 to 34 at this point. Wait, so wait. It's whoa, whoa, whoa. So whoa, whoa. Go, wait, Joni, hold on for just a sec. You said it's the second leading cause for people 10 to 37 years of age. 10 to 34. Some, some of the uh, statistics say 10 to 24, but it certainly includes that group that you were talking about. Wow. Okay, so Joni, I mean, we know that, of course, you know, social media, we can say a lot about Mm -hmm. that. The pandemic, we can say an awful lot about that. Just the climate of chaos we've been living in, uh, you with focus on the family and your work for all these many years, decades as a counselor. uh, Is this that is that that word unprecedented that we're seeing? It is unprecedented. And also the 
information that you were giving previously about what teenage girls are dealing with is something that they not only deal with physically, but also virtually. So that whole virtual world that's there on their social media accounts and so forth exposes them to even more of that trauma and really encourages them to feel a lot of depression and anxiety and hopelessness and so forth. And then you mentioned the ages of your young adult children. And what happens there is that as they get out of those teenage years and get into the years where they're supposed to be more independent and making lots of those really important life decisions such as, am I going to work? Am I going to get married? Am I going to do both, et cetera? They feel anxiety about that. And then there are all the things that have happened in our culture to uh, disrupt those decisions in their lives, the COVID and things shutting down and people losing jobs, et cetera. So they really have been in a world of uh, difficult choices and also many things that are realistically very anxiety-producing. Now, let me add another layer on this, uh, Joni. So I'm watching a streaming service, uh, Hulu, and they, they break for these commercial interruptions. And there's a there's an organization, uh, it's called Him or Her, and they are actively peddling antidepressants and um, erectile dysfunction drugs to young adults. I mean, that's just another layer on top of things where kids are being targeted at an early age. And apparently, you know, you can go and uh, go online, connect with a therapist and be uh, given uh, prescription drugs pretty quickly. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because certainly there are psychoactive medications that can be life saving for some people. But they can also be very destructive to some people. You can take two sisters, let's say, from a family, and maybe they're both struggling with depression, anxiety, et cetera, they could both be given the same medication, and it could be life-giving for one, Mm. and it could be very dangerous for someone else. It certainly isn't something that you should be getting over the Internet. One aspect of the struggle that we're seeing today is becoming increasingly clear. When a teenager is experiencing angst and sadness and depression and body image issues, they are, all too often, encouraged to consider whether they are, in fact, properly aligned with their biological sex. The results are so very sad. Kevin McCullough turned to Kelsey Bolar, a contributor to The Federalist, from AM570, The Mission, in New York City. Kelsey, we, we talked about this before the end of the year as to how, you know, I asked you, I said, well, you know, how, how's the overall fight? And you're like, Kevin, it's getting worse instead of getting better. And there's a new kind of evidence of that in that medical professionals, you assert, are basically abandoning the people that they helped transition. Why are they saying that this is happening? And what difference does it make to those that are trying to detransition now? Yeah, Kevin, thanks for talking about this. It's probably one of the most tragic stories that I've reported on in my many years as a journalist, and that's the case of Prisha Mosley, who is a female detransitioner. She has a long history of very serious mental health illnesses. Despite that, instead of treating her mental health conditions, doctors fast-tracked her 
on the transgender assembly line, putting her on testosterone when she was 17 years old and moving forward with a double mastectomy as soon as she turned 18. No surprise, just a few short years later, she came to regret all of this, and she's now suffering severe medical and mental health complications because of it. She is going down her insurance providers list, trying to find doctors to help treat the very serious complications she's facing. And she is getting turned down one doctor to the next. She says, I can call doctors every day and just get hung up on. Nobody can help me. She feels like a medical monster. And it really just exposes the experimental nature of so-called gender-affirming care because doctors are so enthusiastically pushing minors down this route of cross-sex hormones, which do not have long-term studies on their side effects. They're enabling them to get irreversible surgeries. And then when or should they change their minds, these same providers are not there to offer them any care to re-regulate their bodies, to try to get their lives back. It is so tragic, and doctors really need to answer for why they're putting minors down this path when they refuse to be there for them should they need help coming out of it. I know that uh, Governor Nome in uh, South Dakota just signed a bill this week that makes it the law that they they will not do gender uh, reassignments on kids. But are we seeing... Other public offices step up and say, not on our watch, we're not doing this? Unfortunately, you're seeing red and blue states act predictably, where thankfully red states are finally stepping up. They're not afraid of entering this battle because I think we have done a good job of exposing the medical harms that these types of drugs and procedures are inflicting on children. But blue states are moving the exact opposite direction. I mean, not only are they working to, you know, California's making itself a sanctuary state where children can go there to receive these types of drugs and so-called gender-affirming care without their parents' permission, um, but states all across the country are trying to prevent parents from even having the basic right to be involved in conversations regarding their child's mental health when issues of gender confusion come up in school. This is completely atrocious. Unfortunately, it's happening in my own home state of Virginia where I have young kids. This is something I now have to be worried about when I send them to school. If they ever express any confusion about their gender identity, the teacher has no obligation to report that to me. And this is why we have a case, you know, where a girl in Virginia ended up being sex trafficked and totally abused because the mother didn't know she was, her, her daughter was suffering this type of gender confusion. So she didn't even have the opportunity to help. It's severing the most basic fundamental ties between parent and child and atrocious that anyone would want to cut parents out of these important mental health and medical decisions involving their children. Yeah, it's well, and it seems um, I mean, separating parents and kids in in the public, at least in America, has always been like the third rail. You you just don't you don't touch Mm -hmm. it. There's too much electricity going through it. There's something about the the new left that seems very eager not to just even go there, 
but to try to drive a wedge between parents and children in ways that are far more bold and more open and belligerent than anything that we've seen in the past. And you really have to compare it to Marxist states like the former Soviet states when it comes to this, because, uh, you know, they were very invested in separating the children from the parents and making the children believe that they were objects of the state and not children of parents who love them. We're headed down that path. It, it looks like, at least on the political left right now. Right. You know, some people might say that sounds like conspiracy theorists, but that's not the case. We see this calculated attempt for the state, the government, to take control of our children, to even let children be in control of themselves. Coming up, the weight burdening virtually every American household. Inflation is always more stubborn than people think. It tends to persist, and so understand that this isn't just transitory. When our Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. If the environment of the pandemic contributed directly to the trials we looked at in the last segment, it also contributed directly to another challenge facing virtually every American home and family. Inflation, the shutdown of the economy, the massive outlays in government spending, followed by even more massive outlays in government spending. It all contributed to the inflationary environment we find ourselves in today. Jerry Boyer, host of the Meeting of Minds podcast, turned to Nicholas Stone Street, CEO of Ronald Blue Trust, the largest financial services firm built on biblical principles of wealth management. We didn't learn something new last year. We relearned something that people forgot during, you know, basically from 2008 up until last year, you know, tremendous amount of interest rate suppression, and they got to essentially forget the fundamental truth. Of, of financial valuation, which is that interest rates matter. Yeah, I totally, I agree with that. Um, it's funny because a lot of what we talk about with private investors, you know, we talk to them about volatility, how much something bounces up and down, which is kind of the, the standard measure of risk in our industry. It's called standard deviation. And in fact, in very short periods of time, like in one year, two years, how much something goes up and down is a, a reasonable measure of risk. Volatility is because a you might be forced to sell when it's down, basically. Correct. And as you go longer term, the further your time horizon is, if you've got a 10 year time horizon, volatility is almost irrelevant. What really matters then is inflation. And clients would say, What's inflation? <laughs> They've forgotten about it. Well, now we know, right? The people have been reminded. And it's and inflation is always more stubborn than uh, people think. And that's something we've been on the bandwagon about from very early time uh, during this, uh, from early last year, saying, look, as inflation moves, it tends to persist. And so understand that this isn't just transitory. We never believe that. 
you know, people are always looking for certainty, right? And that's another one of the principles that we talk about, which is the principle of uncertainty. Look, we live in an uncertain world uh, and and people that want to exchange, you know, certainty for uncertainty. A lot of times people will even give up their rights to have perceived stability. Yes. Right. This is like this is what we see in a lot of countries right now. You'll see people um, give up return on their capital over the long term for perceived security. So it, it really is, a, there's this human instinct of a flight to safety. And I think for the most part, um, I like people to be able to sleep at night. And so if they have a portion of their assets allocated to these flight of safe, to safety items like, like gold and uh, commodities and um, uh, collectibles to some extent, we've seen those markets, are, they can be really rocky, uh, or uh, cryptocurrencies, I'm, I'm glad for them to have those allocations, but we really think longer term investors investing in productive companies and harvesting the reward of human productivity in those productive companies is going to be a better bet. But, you know, I think there's still forecasts for a recession. And, you know, I felt like last year we were in recession for part of the year. And I think technically the statistics proved prove that out. Well, they did. Um, and I mean, so we had this hard. Q1 and we had Q2 this hard, were negative. So the yeah, technical definition the of a recession is two quarters in a row of negative Absolutely. economic growth. That's what Investopedia says. That's what Wikipedia says. That's what the dictionary says. Right. And by the way, that's what federal law says. You know, when you have these, um, you know, when you had these deficit reduction, Graham, Holly, you know, deficit reduction plans, what they right. said is you have to limit deficits except during a recession. And in the federal code, they wrote in, you can tell this is like an old beef of mine. In the federal code, they wrote in <laughs> what is the legal definition of a recession? Two quarters in a row of negative economic growth. Okay, that's what we got in the first half of 2022. We had a recession. The question now is, are we going to have another? Well, and I think, you know, this is where uh, I'm not sure that the Fed's done yet. If you would ask me three months ago, I would have said, yeah, this next in February, they'll do another quarter, the 50 base points in a quarter, and then we'll it'll slow it down. Um, and maybe they, they'll let it go for a while. But the other side of that, Jerry, is inflation's much more stubborn and rifles through the economy in a way that people don't necessarily expect. And so you go from these shocks like the oil shock we were having because of the uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine. But then as inflation, higher prices settle in, you know, we also had all the supply chain disruption, uh, being able to get goods, especially from uh, COVID shutdowns, especially it, it showed our vulnerability around China, uh, you know, reliance on China and for goods from China. So you start to get that. And then it kind of took a turn. Uh, inflation's taken a turn towards, okay, now what are you going to do about wages? Because inflation's up 8% this year, and you're going to give your employee their 3% raise, um, you're going to lose people. And we're still in a tight labor market. So this has been a real tightrope because once you start with the the uh, wage, you, you know, the price wage spiral, unwinding that part of the recession story is hard. And then the other thing that I think will be a contributing factor going forward to um, buffet against sort of lower inflation is uh, China's reopening. 
they finally decided, you know, COVID didn't matter. And when they're at the absolute peak uh, COVID in their country, they decided to put people on airplanes and send them all over the world again, which is great. And as China comes back online, you'll start to see the resource competition uh, go at it again. And China's reopening is going to keep inflation higher for longer. And I've seen a lot of forecasts that says, you know, this is just coming down in kind of a straight line. We're not really there with that yet. We're not there that we're going to be at, you know, two and a half percent in the next year. And I've seen a lot of big houses forecasting that. And and we just, yeah, that would, I can tell you my, you know, our own internal Boyer research forecast is something about four and a half percent over the next five years. Um, now that doesn't mean it won't wow. go down, uh, and, and we thought it would, right. right? And we thought it would go up, it went up to ten percent, right. and then it came down to what five percent. So, uh, is, is inflation beaten? Is five percent inflation a victory? Uh, it's it's slowing down, and I think you know, Jerry, we're going to continue to see. Uh, you know, these hikes just put the brakes on a lot of the housing market. So, if you think of the average person in the United States that was going to buy a house and the mortgage rate was 3%. And then because of all the prices running up and the difficulty to get goods for new construction, et cetera, we just saw home prices increase, you know, 30%, 40% in some markets. And so if you look at the uh, 30, 40% increase in home price, they're coming back now some, but then you're looking at people buy as much house as they can get for the payment many times, which is not, you know, always good counsel. And so if you look at a 3% interest rate, which is what we had 14, 15 months ago, to a 6% interest rate, your net house is now 30%, say it was 40, now it's back down. It's 30% more expensive than it was two and a half years ago. And your mortgage payment is now double what it was. And so you've got to buy a more expensive house with a much higher mortgage. And so people's housing costs have, you know, the shock in the housing market is still coming home to roost. Coming up, parental rights in education. There have been uh, statements from teachers unions and leaders in those unions saying they're our kids and that they know better than parents do. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. As we consider where our young people are today, including the issues we looked at earlier in our program, it is true that the response to the pandemic made things much worse for our young people. But long preceding that, we've been watching bit by bit an educational system that is increasingly at odds with the value system of the families they are supposed to serve. Families are now pushing back. 
Florida is pushing a bill that will allow funding for education to follow the student. Jeff Johnston of Focus on the Family has been tracking this issue. He joined Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. These young children are having ideas and thoughts put in their mind. So now we have this gender dysphoria because they're young, they're impressionable, they've been giving this false information, and therefore they have created this whole wide class of people. Am I close to being right or not? I think think you're absolutely right. When you start teaching young children that they might become the opposite sex or they might really be the opposite sex or that there are an infinitude of genders that they could choose from, um, children will believe that. And some of them will sort of glom onto this idea and become captivated by it, and they'll buy into it. And so we've seen an explosion of young people who are struggling with real sexual identity confusion. And some of it's brought on by our culture, by the media and entertainment, but it's also brought about by schools that are teaching this radical ideology. There have been uh, statements from teachers' unions and leaders in those unions saying they're our kids and that they know better than parents do. And we know, as you said, that God gave parents the responsibility to raise their kids, not teachers' unions, not teachers in schools. And that's not only scriptural, it's also a legal issue. The Supreme Court has said that parents are responsible to direct and guide their children's education. And so parents are the ones that have to step in and say, wait a minute, no, there aren't a multitude of genders. This is how God made us. And they they can affirm and bless their child's sexual identity and and step in and encourage them, even if they're struggling with things in the culture or with relationships. Um, It's parents' responsibility to do that, not the school's. And, you know, that's not the only problem in education. We've also seen that um, critical race theory, anti-capitalist, anti-Christian, anti-American themes, those have been brought into textbooks all across the country. Just a, a week ago was a week called Black Lives Matter at School Week. And they were teaching children that they were pushing out resources to schools and encouraging schools and schools across the country bought into this where they were teaching the 13 guiding principles of Black Lives Matter. And that includes destroying the nuclear family. It includes teaching kids queer ideology and teaching them to be trans-affirming. In fact, kids take a pledge that they'll be queer-affirming and trans-affirming. And once those ideas, that confusion gets into a child's mind, it creates problems for them. And you're gonna see more and more kids struggling with this issue. So I'm really glad that Florida is looking to expand their school choice program through the Family Empowerment Scholarship Program, and that this legislation is working its way through the legislature. You know, we're going to pass this law. We're going to have school choice in Florida, uh, so you don't have to have your kids in the public school with these woke agendas. But you know, parents, that's not going to solve the problem. That's only one of the tools. The next tool is, is your involvement. And if you are not committed and if you are not starting and backing this up at home, it's not going to work. Absolutely. This definitely starts at home. We, we encourage parents to, talk, to begin talking with their children about what marriage is, what it means to be a boy or what it means to be a girl. You're not talking about sexual issues or sexual activity. You're talking about basic foundational issues that start in Genesis. We know that God created us male and female in his image. 
And there's something about our maleness or femaleness, our masculinity or femininity that reflects who God is. And that's why this is so important. The attack on sexual identity is an attack on the image of God, just as the attack on human life in the womb is an attack on the image of God. And so parents need to be clear with their children. And you can start this very early. You can talk about how boys and girls are different and moms and dads are different and discuss with them what are some of those differences and why did God make us that way and why is it a good thing that you're a little boy or why is it a good thing that you're a little girl and what is that going to mean as you grow up and you can also teach your kids God's design for marriage that God designed sexuality to be in the context of a husband and wife and it's parents it's our responsibility to do this we can't let the schools do this you're certainly not going to get this in the culture I mean none of us would have thought 60 years ago that we would have to be talking to young children and explaining to them what marriage is, that it's a, a husband and a wife. But that's the reality of where we are in this world today. Coming up, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Said to his opponent, essentially, that parents ought to butt out of education. More on centrality of education when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Glenn Youngkin is, today, the governor of Virginia. He's a Republican in my own state, which, at least in recent years, has not been a particularly red state. The key issue, most observers agree, was that of education. Terry McAuliffe was Youngkin's opponent. Here's the key moment for McAuliffe. I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out make their own decision. You vetoed it. So, yeah, stop the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Eric Metaxas turned to Tim Gagline, also now with Focus on the Family. I'm an inveterate optimist, and I believe uh, in part that that, that the seedbed of that optimism uh, is the parental, and I might say grandparental rebellion that is uh, going on all across our country and very often in places where you least expect it. Uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, people may or may not know that a man who had, yeah, who used to be a governor, who wanted to be a governor again, uh, in, in a moment of unflinching clarity uh, in a debate uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, said to his opponent, essentially, that parents ought to butt out of education, uh, that they ought to leave uh, the curriculum and the decisions of schools uh, to teachers and administrators. And if he thought that he was going to stand down after that debate, he was wrong. It helped to light a bonfire uh, that prevented probably him uh, from coming back uh, to office uh, in, in, in Richmond. And by the way, that has been replicated to your second point, Eric, over and over again. Uh, parents north to south, east to west are of a piece asking, uh, what is a school board? How do you get elected to one? Could I run? Uh, who's teaching my children or my child history uh, or the liberal arts or the humanities or a variety of other things? 
Uh, you know, why are they teaching that in math? Uh, you know, I thought that that civics and that history and government had a particular point. I didn't know that it was about and then fill in the blank. And so I think we've seen governors, we've seen members of state legislatures uh, standing forward for the first time saying, wait a minute, the muck and mire of what progressives have done to the American story, to our Constitution, uh, you know, is uh, is is unforgivable. And it's really, uh, you know, I think a grace note for our nation that maybe slowly, but slowly, we are predictably turning into a better direction. Well, I always forget the name of uh, of the man who, who said that. He was a huge leader uh, in the Democratic Party. He was a big figure in the Clinton world. Uh, and here he is running for governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's almost like in a comedic uh, film, like in a Freudian slip, he says Heil Hitler, you know, and everybody's like, "What? What? What did he say? What did he, he didn't? He didn't just say that. He lets out, uh, or hail Caesar, or something. He suddenly lets out something that is an astonishing admission of a fundamental right. belief. He believes yes. the state overrides the parents. An absolutely dramatically radical thing to say." But he felt the freedom. It slipped out. And suddenly millions of Americans are riveted. They think, what? He said, what? No, no. And then you realize, yes, he said it. And that they want to take your children from you. They want to do exactly what they do in places like the former Soviet Union and and, and the former East Germany uh, and in China today and in North Korea. They want to rob you of your right as a parent to teach your right. child. And it yeah. is it couldn't be more clarifying and dramatic. So uh, I just want to say that that ha- gave me hope just as it gave you hope. You know, Tim, it's kind of funny because we were talking uh, earlier about l- l- cultural elites uh, on, the, on the liberal side of things. They've always had disdain for the family, uh, for parents. They've always leaned toward the state having authority, which is as un-American as it gets. But it hasn't become explicit until recently. Of course, you have uh, in places like California, uh, uh, parents not being told what their children want to be called, their pronouns at school. Really wicked Marxist ideas that have infiltrated America because of the vacuum uh, that we've been discussing in terms of civics and so on and so forth. What are some of the uh, things that you write about in this book that we need uh, to know or that we should focus on? Well, I I think one of the most important things, uh, Eric, and thank you for that question, is the idea of what is the practical implication? What what is the measurable implication of erasure culture uh, and so forth? And I I know that that anecdotes are not statistics, but uh, in behalf of Focus on the Family, uh, where I am one of our vice presidents, I travel about a third of my professional life. And I was uh, speaking in two major universities just in the last three weeks. I'd like to share, if I may, with you and and others who are joining us today, what I experienced. Um, I uh, was not speaking about this book per uh, per se, but uh, in the Q&A, there was a question that came up from one of the audience uh, members about World War II. And I mentioned that I had four uncles who had uh, fought in World War II, and I I made... uh, Uh, some other uh, related comments. 
thank you and good night. And after I finished, and you know this because you speak a lot, almost always there's a number of people who come up to the podium afterward just to have some pleasant uh, conversation. And I had a group of students come up uh, and, and they said to me, you know, we are really uh, uh, taken with this man uh, you mentioned to us. We, we, we've never heard of him. <laughs> what a remarkable person. And they were asking me about Winston Churchill. They, they, they had never heard of Winston Churchill. Uh, and, and I was, I mean, I must tell you, even in the time that we're in, it was a clarifying uh, moment for me. Uh, Eric, uh, uh, Howard Zinn asserted uh, in his, the most widely read American history uh, across all the schools, he asserted, Eric, uh, that the reason the United States went to World War II was ultimately uh, to protect our imperial interests. Uh, you know, I mean, this kind of thing uh, is, is, is very dangerous. And yet, uh, for all those generations and decades, he got away uh, with the kind of lie-based history that now has left a generation and more of Americans puzzled over their own story. We, we, we have to be clear, or at least I have to be clear, and I have the uh, freedom to be clear on my own program. When Howard Zinn says something like that, that we went to World War to, to protect our uh, imperial interests. That's the voice of the devil, ladies and gentlemen, because we don't have time to get into the details. It's the voice of the devil. It is a pernicious, uh, acid-dripping lie designed to destroy anything that it touches. Coming up, renewing our efforts to educate on the American story. The American story begins uh, with the uh, beginning of America. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. So many of our problems facing our young people today really do go back to education. We really shouldn't be all that surprised. There is an ignorance of who we are as a nation, an ignorance of our key leaders and of what we stand for. Tim Gegline is making the case for our nation in his book, Toward a More Perfect Union, the moral and cultural case for teaching the great American story. Let's pick up more of his conversation with Eric Metaxas. What is this case uh, that you make? You say it's a moral and cultural case for teaching the great American story. Well, first, I, uh, I love that question because it really is the golden narrative of the book, Eric. Uh, you know, uh, it's fashionable now to say that you had your story and I have my story and someone down the street has his or her story. And then there's someone across the country and they have a story. And these are all the stories. And there's really not one uh, clarifying a story of the United States. But that is that is demonstrably false. Uh, that kind of uh, balkanization and tribalization of United States history and culture, uh, it really erases fact based uh, history which is the way we have always understood the American story, uh, and recreates uh, a new narrative. The, the goal here is to erase memory, to erase narrative. It's the kind of iconoclasm uh, that we have seen, uh, you know, of the American story. And, uh, and I think, it's, uh, I think we, we have entered very deep waters here, Eric, uh, because we have now uh, several uh, generations of young Americans uh, who are uh, historically, culturally, and demonstrably, uh, constitutionally illiterate. The ramifications are enormous. 
because America is an idea, it's not a tribalist identity, it's not a blood race identity, it's not a religious identity, it is an idea. And if you subscribe to those ideas, you can be an American and you can live out this unprecedented uh, miracle of self-government. It's a beautiful idea. So in your mind, Tim, what, what is the American story before we make the case for why it needs telling? The American story uh, begins uh, with the uh, beginning of America. Uh, what, 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 what the patriots knew as the cause. They never called it the American Revolution, of course. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, 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 the remarkable story uh, of the Constitutional Convention, the remarkable story of the, uh, of the signing of the Declaration, which is, of course, the beginning of the United States of America, uh, all the way through to the nullification crisis, the opening of the American West, uh, the, the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction, uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, this is the American story, a Great Depression, uh, you know, two world wars, the social and moral revolution, uh, Vietnam, Watergate, etc. Unfortunately, demonstrably, we're living in a time of mass historic and constitutional illiteracy, uh, particularly on the part of the rising generation of young Americans. That concludes our program today. You can get the full interview of Eric Metaxas with Tim Gagline at ChristianOutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.